Welcome to another exciting episode of The Nuclear View, a weekly podcast of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, where we want to advance peace, promote stability, and remind you to think deterrence. The views of the guests are their own. Welcome back to another great episode of The Nuclear View, where we, the people of NIDS, talk about current topics and you know, great issues of the day. Of course, I'm Adam Lowther, as I always am. And I've got Jim Petrosky, Curtis McGiffin, and we have a guest. And her name is Michaela Dodge. You may know her from the National Institutes for Public Policy. Uh, she was at Heritage before, and she's pretty good with the pen. And she writes some great articles and other material that deal with nuclear issues. And she had a recent piece that came out. It was a NIP occasional paper that talked about why we are not in such dire straits from the Russians suspending their participation in New START. So we thought we liked the article. Jim loved it. Curtis loved it. I liked it. And we thought, well, why don't we have Michaela come on to the nuclear view and, and just discuss it with us. And then we could have a, a great discussion about arms control and just how important it is today. And with that very long introduction, Michaela, welcome to the nuclear view. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful to be here and I'm looking forward to the discussion. I think this is by far one of the more controversial pieces that, that I've worked on. And um, it kind of boils down to three points. One, we should not worry about Russia's new start suspension. Two, we should worry about today's geopolitical environment. And three, we are currently better off without arms control because we're so terrible at, at it. So I published that piece, basically making the case that Russia's new start suspension does not matter. And I felt that it was an intellectually consistent position with the treaty's criticism that we, some of us made at the time when the Senate considered the treaty in 2010. Back then, we criticized the treaty as being effectively unverifiable, omitting tactical nuclear weapons in which the Russians maintain massive advantage, limiting missile defense, and that the United States has to make a majority of reductions while Russia was actually allowed to build up in some of the treaty categories. Now, we lost that argument, and then the Biden administration extended the treaty without any preconditions in February 2021. Putin spurned the administration a year later when he suspended the treaty's implementation. And I thought that the intellectual inconsistency of some of New Start's proponents has come into full light since. At the time of Senate's consideration, we were told that New Start must be ratified during the lame duck session. Uh, and now they're telling us that they do not see that Russian suspension constitutes an extraordinary event that jeopardizes U.S. supreme interests. Now, in the context of Russia's massive escalation of its war in Ukraine, the Russians are telling us the treaty is done for now. The State Department cannot even certify that Russia is in compliance with the treaty. And that is really not an extraordinary event that jeopardizes U.S. supreme interests. I mean, either the content matters or it does not, but we cannot have it both ways. Now, as 
for the geopolitical context in which the arms control process resides. Um, one of our favorite thinkers at NIPP, Colin Gray, said, the political antagonism that generates the objective need for alleviation via arms control, always assuming, again fallaciously, that arms control could control, is the very reason why arms control must fail. <clears throat> and fail it must. Since Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, they have issued an unprecedented number of nuclear threats. And it's not like the number was that low to begin with, or the frequency was that low to begin with. And they clearly think these threats are working um, in some ways. Just recently, Medvedev told us that wars can be ended very quickly by signing a peace treaty or by nuking the other party. They value their nuclear superiority <laughs> qualitatively and quantitatively, and they poke fun at our our efforts to to have arms control with them, have nuclear reductions with them, um, because as Putin said, that's their competitive advantage. Now, of course, we have China's breathtaking nuclear buildup. We have trouble in North Korea, and at, you know, if at this particular juncture one was comforted by the existence of New Start, well, I, I do have a very lovely seaside property to sell to you in the Czech Republic. <laughs> Now, U.S. arms control proponents do not appear to recognize how adversaries use the process to advance their anti-American goals. Basically, they always they, they never put any preconditions on talk. They tell they tell the adversaries that uh, that it doesn't matter what's going on in our relationship, and some of them even goes go that far, saying that we should not link arms limits to other issues because they're an existential necessity in their own right, as uh, Rose Gattemuller uh, recently wrote. I mean, it's completely silly to not link nuclear arms limits to other issues and not consider the state of bilateral uh, relations uh, because arms control will always follow politics. Let me ask you a question, Michaela. And you bring up a great point, and, and this is one of the things that sort of I worry about, you know, frequently. And that is, you know, when you have programs, you've got graduate programs in arms control and disarmament. That's what they're called. So we already know what the, you know, what the uh, the outcome is supposed to be. There's only one out. There's only one right outcome, and it's arms control and disarmament. And so I, I sort of wonder, for many of the American advocates of arms control, is there any reality in which they live that would suggest that arms control take new start, for example, is not a good thing. Or is it, is it sort of, you know, it's almost like, I wonder, you know, I live in Kansas city, not very far down the road from me is Midwest theological seminary, which is the Southern Baptist seminary in the Midwest. And, you know, the Southern Baptist Convention has a very clear theology. And I sort of wonder if that's not sort of the same thing for the, this large arms control, non-proliferation disarmament community. And for somebody like you who's been looking at it and really thinking about it, I'm sort of curious if there's if you found any instances in which they say, well, you know, this is not a good deal, or this is something we shouldn't do. Or is it just always, by definition of theology, a good idea? 
Well, I can think of one historical instance where the arms controller said that it wasn't a good idea and that was the zero solution or zero proposal that the Reagan administration put forward during the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, right? Back then, they thought that the administration proposed it to kill arms control, and it happened to work, and it happened to be one of the most successful arms control treaties of all times. Um, So you could probably find instances, but maybe not in a sense that you were uh, thinking about it. But, you know, it's... To me, the, the arms control discussion is a little bit like a discussion about climate change, right? Like if it's if the weather is too hot, it's climate change. If the weather is too cold, it's climate change. And, and I, I do think that the community just lacks the sort of like falsification and realistic ability to to reassess and critically look at, okay, this worked, this didn't work, we shouldn't have done it. Basically, you always see these exposed rationalizations of why what we did at the time was a good idea at the time, even though at the time was a, it was a stupid idea. And Reset and New Start is an excellent example of that. I mean, you know, on the heels of Russia invading Georgia, we tried to reset relations and have New Start. I mean, how, how could have that turned out? Yeah. And then on the heels of, you know, Russia refusing to comply with New Start requirements, verification requirements, we extended New Start. So there, and you as a, you know, as a Czech, uh, somebody, you know, who came to the U.S. from the Czech Republic, you know better than most how the Russians don't necessarily keep their word. And so there, there should be a lot of, you know, people in the arms control community who, you know, since that's what they do for a living, they should know better than most that whether it's the chemical weapons convention or the biological weapons, it, it, the Russians never do what they say they're going to do, but yet they consistently want to engage in more and more arms control treaties. See, the, the piece that we are missing, I think, in our collective discussions is we have stopped thinking about how weapons advance our political objectives. And so the overall objectives becomes nuclear weapons reductions. And we think that that's a general objective for us and for the other party. And so while the other party is thinking about how its weapons, including nuclear, advance political objectives, we think that we are working on a common goal of reducing or eliminating nuclear weapons, or, you know, we can call it a more ambiguous, ambiguously reducing nuclear tensions and managing strategic stability relations. Um, and, and so we assume this, this joint big interest. And because we assume that, details stop mattering. But of course, details really matter if we are talking about weapons and how they advance political objectives. So I think, you know, that's, that's good, the that's the muscle that we have to start exercising again. Um, the, it's that idea that weapons, it's not about nuclear reductions, about nuclear eliminations. It's about thinking how certain weapon systems help us advance our political objectives and allied political objectives. 
and then you know how how our adversaries subvert the process to prevent us from doing that. Yeah. So so Michaela, thanks for being here, by the way. And uh, I, I'm going to strut my I'm one quarter uh, Czech in my family background, and so I'm very proud of that. My <laughs> great grandmother immigrated from Prague, and uh, so. Um, uh, I love this paper. I love your thoughts on this process. Uh, you know, I really see uh, this arms control uh, issue is a lot like, or arms controllers, um, the negotiators, this this um, ecosystem that exists out here. They're like they're like weathermen, right? And I, I don't mean to demean weathermen, right? But they can make a weather prediction, and it can be one hundred percent wrong, and they still have a job the next day. Right. And so here we see with our arms controllers, they preach the gospel of arms control while uh, through an idealistic lens, while at the same time producing little results that help um, our side of the argument. Um, I like to I always like to to share with my students, um, uh, you know, the 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 three rules of, of any arms control treaty that must be, and, and if you don't meet these three rules, you're doomed to fail, right? And the first two, these are credited to the great Frank Miller, right? And he says, right, you must ensure the national security of all signatories, right? So at the end, you still have to feel like you're maintaining your security uh, in, in that regard. And second, you, there must be verifiable um, uh, the treaty must be verifiable with sufficient corrective measures. Well, we know that doesn't exist right now. Um, and then I add a third, not for me to redefine the great Frank Miller, but I add a third because I think it's important and that the treaty must be mutually desired. And I don't believe that treaties that we enter into and negotiate are mutually desired in the sense of this altruistic idea that we've got to lower the threshold of these sorts of capabilities. Because in the end, our adversaries see nuclear weapons as a way to advance their national interests. And we see uh, nuclear weapons, or at least our arms controllers do, as something that inhibits the furthering of our national interests. And I think this is a, this is a diametrically opposed uh, formula here. And, and it's essentially uh, when we go into these, we're bringing a knife to a gunfight because we don't see the world the same way. We don't value the nuclear capabilities the same way. And if we want it more than they do, we're going to lose in these negotiations. And I think the history has borne that out. I think your article really proves it. Does a great job of, of, of making that argument, right? No treaty that hasn't been violated. And then I would ask this final thing, Michaela, and, and the things that you've looked at and, and the studies that you've done. Why is it that we think that in the middle of probably the worst conflict instigated by, by Russia since Afghanistan in 77, that we can negotiate in good faith while calling this the, the person we're negotiating with a war criminal, uh, someone who's consistently violating the sovereignty of other nations and not adhering to all of these other protocols and agreements. But yet somehow we can trust them to negotiate honorably uh, in the next set of, of nuclear uh, 
um, arms control. I'm curious your thoughts on that. I imagine the proponents of arms control would say that they account for Russia's dishonorable interests. And in that calculus, still, uh, still find out that the pursuit of arms control comes out as a better option than not having an arms control. So, you know, that would be part of the response. I think part of the response is that we are optimistic by our nature. We do not, it seems to me that we don't retain information for a very long time. And so it seems that it's very difficult for us to learn from history. And it trickles into self-assessments. You know, one of my one of my interesting examples, kind of not in the nuclear area, but still in the defense area, is the internal review of the government found out that we did no mistakes in terms of planning our withdrawal from Afghanistan. I mean, something that is so obviously, demonstrably, was a terrible failure. And we right. find out that it it wasn't that it was okay and nobody is being held accountable for that. Um, so that, you know, he, here is your example. The second example, um, as you know, the uh, recruitment it, into the Department of Defense, into the services as, is at an all-time low. And we do a study saying that it's absolutely not because of all the politically very controversial agendas that are being pushed by the leadership onto the military. Oh, really? <laughs> you know, it, it, so so it, it's just part of the, the, the self-deception is part of our culture, the inability to critically assess, okay, this works, this doesn't work. It's not conducive to our political cycle. It's not conducive to polarization that we have. Uh, and it, it, it is very hard to to have the kinds of discussions that make better policy in this sense. Yeah, I, I, I thank you for that. I, I, I agree completely. It, it, arms control can't be an end into itself. It, it has to serve a purpose. And I think there are too many people who politically virtue signal through this idea of, well, if we just keep asking for arms control, let's come to negotiate that, that, that somehow feels better at, at um, that we're going at it. And I'll throw out here real quick and I'll get it back to you, Adam is, you know, I'd like to remind the, the quote, uh, I think it was the great Bob Joseph when he said, arms control is a problem masquerading as a solution. Uh, I think it's a great thought. That's on, a very uh, Bob Joseph quote. Yeah, it is a very Bob Joseph quote. Thanks. I think we're going to, you know, one of the things I would like to see you, Michaela, do or Keith or anybody else at NIP is to really unmask the arms control industrial complex for what it truly is. And for, you know, I mean, it's it's graduate, it's academic graduate programs. It's, you know, multimillion dollar a year think tanks. It's all of the things that if, you know, if they were ever success, I mean, for one, they can't be successful because if they ever were, they'd go away. So they, they can't actually want success, but they have to, you know, sort of 
muddle along in order to keep, you know, non-proliferation programs, arms control programs, all of the things that keep them employed. Right. And, you know, I think that that's quite a bit different than for those of us who are sort of the pro-nuke crowd, because, you know, if you were to come up with rods from God or lasers or whatever, you know, those of us who care about deterrence, we would, we'd still be here because it's not really about nuclear weapons. It's about achieving the effect in the mind of an adversary. And I don't, you know, right now it's nukes, but you know, one day it might be who knows what technology will give us. Jim, I know you wanted to say something. Well, yeah, thank you. Uh, first of all, Michaela, uh, thank you for coming to NIDS and, and talking with us today. I'll, I'll have to say, I, I don't normally read articles like yours. And now that I'm in NIDS, because I've always done the technology side, now that I'm in NIDS, I, I do a lot of this reading. And I'll, in a, in a pre-show prep, as we were talking, and by the way, for our audience, uh, we're going to try to open that someday to you. But in our pre-show prep, I mentioned that I read your article. I found it interesting and exciting. And in the same day, I was reading an, a, a book by Adam Lowther, and I just didn't get the same excitement out of that book as I did your article. So I wanted to just push that to you to, to let you know that it Thanks made that, that impact comment, on me. Thanks for that comment, Jim. Yeah, no problem, Adam. So, no, um, so let me take it. Yeah, there you go. So, so let me uh, let me ask a quick question uh, that sort of is counter to this, and I, I'd be interested in your your comments on on episode nine of of our the Nuclear View podcast. We had General Austin. Uh, talk to us about treaties, et cetera. And he said, you know, one of the great advantages of the treaties are not the treaties themselves, but the fact that it does what uh, Curtis calls one of the vitamin C's of, of deterrence, and that's communication. It gets us communicating. And part of that process, whether, you know, whether a decision is made or not, we get to understand at least what our adversaries are thinking and what they're willing to give up and not give up. And that's quite valuable from the standpoint of deterrence. And so I'd be interested in your comment about how that fits into just saying we, you know, because I think it does in somewhat matter, but we'll see what happens there. So how do you communicate? Uh, you know, I, I'd be worried if treaty communication was the communication that was determinative as to our judgments, whether adversaries value something or don't value something. Uh, partly because our adversaries use arms control to restrain us while uh, opening options available to them. I also believe that you don't need arms control to communicate. If the communication is in the adversary's interest, you will find a way and you don't need arms control institutionalized process. And because we do arms control so poorly in general, I just don't think it's worth it. That I think, you know, that's that, that's where I that's where I ultimately just my calculus looking at the way we pursue arms control, looking at what it's done in our national security. I don't think it's worth it. Okay. Yeah, thank you. No, I, I, I thought I'd point that out because mm-hmm. a lot of people try to use that as the as the angle to say we have to do this to get to the table. And I agree with your your view on that because uh, there's a lot of other ways to you know do that. The, the other piece is, um, and you brought it up before, but I always look at it as why is limiting weapons the goal of any of these armed control treaties, you know, these treaties anyway? Why is not limiting war or limiting the threat of war? You know, maybe, maybe, 
perhaps the question we should be because we tried that and it didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we we had a treaty that limited war yeah. in the interwar period. Uh, yeah. So 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 maybe but, the question in the treaty maybe the treaty it. should start out by looking at how many nuclear weapons we need to stop our adversaries from further developing their you know their weapon systems. What does that number take? Maybe that's the other way. And then I'd be all for that treaty. Like, okay, we need 9,000 to stop you you from developing any good. That's what we'll build. You know, the administrations will tell you that's that's what they do, right? They go through their internal process. They do the NPR. And then magically, 1550 comes out (laughs) on the other end of the Mm -hmm. process, right? So it's not even about the numbers. It's about the questionable assumptions that go into the planning that feeds into the numbers. Yeah. So one of my you know, all-time favorite quotes uh, in the 2010 NPR is that um, Russia is no longer an adversary and that the potential for conflict is low. And you know, as long as that assumption holds, and I think it was General Chilton who said it at the time, he said, as long as the Russians don't cheat on an agreement and the NPR's att- assumptions stand, I can do the deterrence job with New Start force posture. Well, okay, that was 13 years ago. And we've, so we've it, gone right. to, through the process again, and we can still do it with New Start deterrence yeah. posture, even though the assumptions are demonstrably false. And, you know, Absolutely. I mean, I love conventional weapons, right? But have we had a massive miraculous breakthrough in the pa- in the past 10 years that that would let us, you know, lean away from nuclear deterrence with the acquisition cycle that it is? I mean. So let let me ask a more fundamental question that I wonder. I mean, to me it's it's really sort of two things. One, it's you know, Keith's written about it. I've written about it. This idea of you, you essentially have two worldviews, the idealist worldview and the realist worldview. And, you know, one says human nature is fundamentally flawed and people are wicked and they're going to, you know, act for fear, honor, and interest. You know, Thucydides says that. And then there's this idealist view that says with, if we just have the right institutions and we teach the right values, then we can build this, you know, this peaceful world. And, you know, transform. yeah, we can transform the human, you know, but the funny thing is even Lenin wrote that unless he could transform human nature, then he could never achieve, he could never build communist man and achieve communism because even Lenin recognized that man is, as is described, sort of in the Judeo-Christian sense. And so I, I guess I wonder, is this not really a fundamental debate between idealists and sort of the realists, and that we're, we're sort of, you know, we're not addressing that fundamental debate. We're, we're sort of moving it up a level to talk about nukes, when in reality we, we've got to figure out what is human nature and, and agree upon it before we can start worrying about, you know, poverty and nuclear weapons and, you know, all these other things. I don't think you can agree on it though, precisely because the, the, the worldview is just so fundamentally different. 
Yeah, I think I think you hit on that yeah, with, I mean, the, that with be- your climate change analogy. Um, because you can't, you can predict all you want that's going to happen a hundred years from now, but no one's going to be held accountable now for what's happening a hundred years from now. And, and so we look, so we look in the past, like you said, and we look at human nature and you're not, we're humans. We're going to have human nature (laughs) and you can't change that. That's a a fundamental that we've got to stick with. But that's the argument. But that's the argument, Jim, is they say that you can change it. And I would submit like your your climate change argument is more akin because if you really look back, you know, the Club of Rome wrote a very famous book in the 1970s that talked about the coming ice age. That might have been the title. And then, you know, that never happened. So then we went to global warming. And then when that didn't seem to be working out, we went to climate change. And then any change in the weather was attributable. And so all of these quote unquote scientists have now removed the, the need but, but, for proof. And now, but Adam, but, but, Adam, but I want to ahead, bring Jim. it back to Michaela's argument because I like her argument because she says it always comes back to limiting, you know, come, why are we talking about limiting arms and all this, all of those arguments global warming, global cooling, climate change. Now they all have the fundamental solution. And that is that industrialized countries have to give up some resources to non-industrialized countries. That seems to be the solution always, you know, it's always take something away, give some money away. And here in the case of arms control, it's always give up your nuclear weapons. That always seems to be the answer. And it isn't the answer when we start saying what limits war. We've seen that in the history. And that's my point. But I, I draw a different lesson from her climate change <laughs> argument. The climate change argument, I think, is about it's about the ability to take the truth oh. and recast the truth into whatever you want it to be. It's 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 a it's a Joseph Goebbels argument. If you tell a lie loud enough and long enough, people will believe it. And the whole point of the disarmament argument is that you have to keep telling the lie over and over and over again. And regardless of what the truth is, you, you recast the truth to fit the lie. So, so let's talk about, just move into the, that propagandic side here. So the treaty for the prohibition uh, on nuclear weapons, TPNW, Michaela, how is the TPNW? uh, Do you think is, how do you think that is going to inform uh, arms control looking forward as far as negotiations. I mean, neither Russia, China, or the U.S. or NATO allies have um, acquiesced and signed or ratified any of that treaty. Um, but clearly the world is interested. Um, well, it's a lot less interested now than it yeah. was two years ago. <laughs> yeah. Well, certainly on the Russians and Chinese side. <laughs> It's not to their advantage. <laughs> um, so, um, well, if you if you if you listen to the to the you know the, the TPNW advocates, uh, they'll tell you that countries who are not in the nuclear game are ratifying this treaty and and changing the world's perspective, uh, and that they did that, if you will, for um, cluster bombs. Yet. We're introducing cluster bombs into the Ukrainian conflict. 
Um, where is our idealism versus our right realism here in 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 American government as we look at arms control treaties in the long run here? I mean, the idealistic part is that we do arms control treaties and we think that they can transcend geopolitics. I'd say that's our idealism. Our realism is that not everyone believes it and we continue to have very vigorous discussions about it. Even though I think over time we have lost the knowledge base to have those discussions on educated levels in somebody's responsible for arms control treaty oversight, for example. Um, yeah. Yeah. So let me ask you, we're, we're at that point where we got to wrap the show up, but let me ask you to end the show. If you know, what is your sort of takeaway message that you would want the listeners out there to understand about arms control and the new start treaty? What's, what's sort of that, you know, bottom line up front. That we don't need to be scared when there is no arms control because fundamentally it doesn't matter. What matters is geopolitics and political re relations among states. Boom. <laughs> Drop the mic, walk off. Adam, just for the record, since we, was, did uh, it, since we did we'll this at the end, it's technically a blob, bottom line on the bottom. Just, just to correct you at the okay. end of this show. <laughs> it was my bottom line up front too, and you didn't even let me get to my most controversial point. Go, well, actually, well, that get was to the my most controversial point. There we go. It uh, it just doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. Yes. That's a, that's another so, movie line. It just doesn't matter. Yes, it, it is. Well, there you go. You got your movie lines. <laughs> but I, I will say. I really do think there are benefits to actually not having arms control at all. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's worth reiterating that we can preserve yeah. programmatic and intellectual flexibility to assess what we need for credible deterrence in a new environment. And that goes to that point, it doesn't always need to be reductions, but if you have arms control treaties hanging over your head, the pressure will always be on the reductions. We would avoid the temptation to limit system preemptively in the vain hope that doing so will entice our adversaries, right? We unilaterally canceled um, the TLMN despite allied objections with the vision that others will follow. Well, no, yeah. we just messed up our assurance policy and perhaps extended deterrence. Uh, other thing that's important too, is if we are in the arms control process, the pressure is on uh, sort of undervaluing non-compliance and maybe taking longer to calling out states uh, for their non-compliance. Uh, and yeah. again, you can say, yeah, we can do all of these things perfectly fine, but history shows us that it just becomes that much more difficult to do them when you have vested interests, AKA breach and agreement, and foreign propaganda that hijacks the process. Yeah. And when you have a national security advisor who has decided that he is willing to be in a treaty by himself. Um, and Did he say has, that? You know, formally, he's for, yeah, he's formally announced that America will continue to follow the New START oh, treaty yeah, requirements. Yeah. 
I mean, we always do that, with, right? And without knowing. So we will be hamstrung till 26 while Putin and the Russians will continue to do whatever it is they want to do unverified uh, while lying to us and telling us what we want to hear uh, because you know, I kind of want to do a little more, more work on this, but one of the bad things about arms control treaties is that they limit our ability to learn about systems that they are reducing. And again, case in point, uh, intermediate range nuclear forces treaty. And that's because our system is set up in a way where, well, if I can't do it because of arms control, I don't want to spend real resources on it because I can't, it's not a system I can develop, I can mm -hmm. deploy I can operationalize. And so I don't even want to waste time thinking about it because I have all of these other priorities that I can do uh, where I can put my main power in. Um, right. So I, I think that would make for an interesting case study. Absolutely. Well, unfortunately, we are out of time. So with that, Michaela, thanks for coming on. Thanks for thanks sharing. For yeah, thanks for sharing your recent paper. It was a, a good discussion. I know we sort of derailed it, but uh, so with that, thanks very much. And thanks to you, the listeners. And we will, oh yeah, I can't forget. We always run a, remind you to think deterrence and join us on the next episode. Thank you for listening to this week's The Nuclear View. We hope you found it engaging and valuable. The Nuclear View is released each Wednesday and is a production of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, a 501c3 organization. We are dependent upon donations to provide our podcasts. Every donation helps keep this and many other deterrence-related activities happening and helps to bring about awareness of the peacekeeping value of U.S. strength and of our national deterrence. We occasionally answer questions from our valued listeners. If you wish to send us questions on a topic, please send your email to asknids at thinkdeterrence.com. That's asknids, one word, the at symbol, and thinkdeterrence, one word, dot com. If you enjoyed this show, check out our other weekly podcast, Nuclear Knowledge. You can catch all of our podcasts at thinkdeterrence.com under the Deterrence Podcast tab. We thank our producer, Kimberly Charrington, our sponsors, and all the fantastic members of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies for making this podcast possible. Stay tuned next week for another exciting and informative nuclear view, where we want to advance peace, promote stability, and remind you to always think deterrence.